This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to independent film. Inside, you'll find tools, tips, and tricks vetted by industry professionals, independent films that will inspire your creativity, filmmaking events where you can rub elbows with filmmakers just like you, and so much more. The best part of it all, it's absolutely free. All you have to do is go to www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe. And within a few clicks, you'll be part of our newsletter community. Again, that's www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, a free bi-weekly newsletter from Chris and Nick at Bonsai Creative. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. How's everybody doing today? Um, my name is Jeff Clanigan. I'm the founder of Code Black Films, as well as the president and chief distribution officer of Kevin Hart's company, Heartbeat Entertainment. Jeff Clanigan, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks for having me on. It really is my pleasure. I'm super excited to, to have you with us. You're, you're so, um, so experienced. And you have been so successful in all your endeavors. And I just know that there's a ton that this independent film audience and, and uh, creative audience in general globally is going to learn from you. Normally, I would uh, read from a bio and give people a deeper sense of, of who you are. And, and that was sort of the plan. But I think with the time that we have, I should skip over that because your bio is incredibly long and rightfully so with all the things you've accomplished. And I just want to jump right in. I will start in a, at a place I didn't expect, though, uh, with the the writer's strike coming up. So mm -hmm. or the potential of a writer's strike with the WGA. I'm, I'm curious, what is your uh, take on it? And what is the impact that this potential strike would have on on Code Black and on Heartbeat? Um, my take on a writer's, I mean, it's not the first time the writer's strike, but obviously there are a lot of issues that the writers have to deal with with the renegotiation of the contract and it really comes down to streaming um the previous writers agreement did not really address the streaming business and what i mean by that is writers you know get paid by their upfront fees but more so in television they get paid by their royalties when you know when shows play or if a commercial plays um so it's those royalties that writers live on the current structure of the streaming business does not allow or kind of caps or prohibits their earning potential. So they have big issues that they're going to have to deal with, with all the big streamers. What, if any impact will this have on, on heartbeat? Well, I mean, you know, the impact is obviously if there's a writer strike, if we're working on scripted um, movies or television, that that's going to shut down. Um, but what happens is you, you have to you have to pivot to unscripted. I mean, it's you know th this is an entertainment business. Not like any of us have not seen this before. I mean, you right. know, we we made pivots when pandemic happened. But what happens is your scripted productions will have to shut down, and you'll have to move towards unscripted um, productions of content. Now, yeah, what happens though? What could really be a bit, uh, an issue is that there's a potential director strike. So if the writers and the directors are striking at the same time, that's going to be, that's going to be tough, even on the unscripted stuff. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see if there's some sort of vote taken at the DGA and sort of uh, some sort of solidarity around that, where people just decide to go ahead and strike both on the director side, producer side and writer side. That'd be, um, 
that'll be hard to navigate. Now, I, I am curious about the AI component of this because I did read, I think maybe it was in a Variety or Hollywood Reporter, that the writers are open to uh, you know using AI, want to be able to use AI to help write their content and get credit for it still you know in the eyes of um well i should just say in your eyes do you think do you think there's a concern there that they that they can just completely be replaced by ai in the future anyway and that that's part of the negotiation of this strike i, I think the concern is nobody really knows what a, the potential of AI? I mean, I think I'm a I'm somewhat of a fan of AI using yeah. the right way. But you know, we're starting to see stuff like are you saying you saw these bootleg songs with Drake coming out and Jay Z, and they're using um, the artist voices. That is a, that is a clear copyright violation. Yep. Um, I think that what I think right now, just from an overall standpoint, that. It's almost like the internet, the AI, nobody can control how to AI and it's, what, it's really what your program, what are the inputs and everybody's not going to do the right thing. So I think the Hollywood itself is, is proceeding um, cautiously. I mean, I think there are some, some generally some, some great use cases for AI, but I feeling like everything else that's going on in the world is going to get out of control. And nobody's going to be able to control it. <laughs> That's going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree. And look, you know, full disclosure, we decided just to have some fun and use chat GPT four to do research. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a researcher and that we pay and I do a lot of research to get prepared for these interviews, but we decided we'd try it. And here, here was my problem with the results they pulled up on you uh, or that the chat GPT or the AI uh, the, the LLM pulled up on you is that it gave me a lot of information, but I had no way to verify whether or not it was true. Yeah. And wow. so one thing I've seen with, with, uh, we've been using some sort of AI for years at Bonsai Creative and on this podcast. But my issue is, is that I think the AIs don't know when they're lying or they don't know when they're not wrong. And the only way you can test it is by testing things, you know, to be true. So like, you know, start to look up yourself on mm-hmm. these on these gpts prompt make prompts about things you know to be true personally and then when you find out how inaccurate they are mm-hmm. i think that raises a massive red flag because had i just used that research without any type of just like taking the okay. ai's word for it i mm-hmm. could be saying things to you that are completely not related to you without exactly. realizing it it's it's i think we're in fascinating times um and I appreciate your your candor mm-hmm. about AI and, and those concerns. And, you know, um, I'm sure networks have to be saying to themselves, if the if the writer's going to get credit for AI work, then uh, then maybe we should negotiate a better deal where eventually we we see ourselves on a path where we just replace yeah. it. But I hope that never happens. But but there is no excuse for writer's block anymore. <laughs> also, I I had a yeah. I mean, I think the AI can assist. I don't think AI is going to ever take the place of a writer per se. It's just because yeah. it invades the computer. <laughs> it's yeah. just technology. You can't take the place of human creativity. I don't care how far you go. I mean, you can you can duplicate and try to do different things, but at the end of the day, it's it's still you know it's still tech. It's and tech does not tech can only be as creative as the information or, or the inputs that are put in there. And it's, it's, you know, unless we're saying AI is a human brain, then it's just not going to be a replacement for our writers, but it can be an assist. Um, it's, you know, there's things like you're supposed to, so I'll give you an example. We were doing a, we had to do a, a, a photo shoot um, with Kevin Hart for um, an upcoming project. And what I did was because he, he kind of said, hey, I want to do something like this. So what I did is I just fed the AI, fed in the AI, and they gave us a bunch of different looks for the photographer. So we used that as the storyboard. So that's so I think that's where it was very, very helpful. So now we have all these storyboards and Kevin could look at it, the photographer look at it like this direction. And we had the AI kind of do the storyboard before the shoot. Um and that same philosophy can be used, especially for um shooting films and movies is that you could basically storyboard out your whole movie. Like you could take the script and literally storyboard that whole movie out in AI, which, um, you know, 
up until now, storyboarding takes a long time. It's a long process, but you can just really crank this stuff out really quick. So there's things like that where it can be really additive to a production. Agreed. There's a great app called Runway that does incredible storyboarding mm -hmm. and many, many, many other things, by the way. Um, if you have a short film, it's particularly ideal or in, in terms of just getting ideas out and being super creative beyond what you could normally afford as an independent filmmaker. So yeah, we're, like I say, we're in interesting times and um, there are some really useful cases. And then there's the parlor tricks that you talked about, like making a Drake song or a Jay-Z song. I had a lot of friends do a backflip over that. And I said, like, yeah, but the song isn't good. Mm -hmm. Like, it, like you know, and they thought it was good. It's like, well, I'm a musician. That song wasn't good. <laughs> that yeah. just was Drake's voice doing something. Uh, that, that There's a big difference between that. So we'll, we'll see how it goes and how much that AI is able to teach itself. Uh, I'd love to go back a little bit uh, in time with you. Uh, and we do bounce around this podcast a little bit. So mm -hmm. uh, fair warning. You have a quote that says your everyday motivation is your kids. And mm -hmm. I'm curious for you, is it about providing? Is, is that the motivation? Uh, is that why your kids are your motivation? Because you like to provide? Or is it more about who they see in you? Yeah, it, it, it's a combination. It, it is, you know, it, obviously it is definitely providing. It's also creating a legacy, but it's also um, being an example um, to my kids and, you know, other kids. Um, but it is, it is, it's a combination of all three. I wouldn't say it's just, I wouldn't say it's just one particular thing, but yeah, actually providing is, you know, number one. Yeah. And I know you've seen a lot being in this business, uh, working, with a variety of of luminaries across hip hop and and entertainment and film, uh, including you know NWA, Run DMC, Master P, uh, obviously Kevin Hart, and even more. Do you want your kids to be in entertainment? No. <laughs> Why is that? I mean, it well, the entertainment business to 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 basically. Um, Create a career in entertainment business. It takes a certain type of person, but the entertainment business is 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 cutthroat. It's ruthless. It, it, I mean, we can talk about it a lot, but it is not a business that I would push my kids towards. Now, if they wanted to go in, there, I wouldn't stop them. I would help them, but it's not something that I would like push them push them to. I mean, it's just it's just you got to be a certain type of person to be in the entertainment business. Growing up in San Jose, California. What did your parents say about you going into entertainment? What were their feelings? Well, the, the thing about it is, you know, my progression in entertainment, I was still working at a job before I fully, <laughs> before I fully stepped in the entertainment business. Um, yeah. I was working at, uh, when I graduated from University of Washington, University of Washington, I was working at Dun & Bradstreet and then kind of moonlighting entertainment. So it was kind of a side thing. It never was like, oh, okay, that's your career until I, until I actually had to make the jump. But, you know, the thing about it is you, like, if you were to ask my mother back then, like, what does Jeff do? They, like, well, they couldn't really explain what I did because I was a promoter. Like, it's just, like, it's not a job description. <laughs> you, like, <laughs> I, I would kind of like, just talk, hey, this, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Uh, I do marketing because that was, that's my, my degrees of marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So they couldn't necessarily, for a while, they couldn't necessarily, like, really say what I actually did because it's just, it's, you know, you talk about, you know, I have a lot of relatives back East in Pittsburgh and you see, like try to tell them what I actually do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the normal job description, especially at, at that time. Cause I was a concert promoter. What is a guy with a marketing major doing, getting a job at Dun and Bradstreet? Um, it was just a job, you know, when I came out, <laughs> I don't know how I got, I got recruited there. Um, I was a credit analyst. Um, that was just, I, I, don't, I don't know why, I don't know how I ended it, but that was just the first job when I came out of college. <laughs> so for those who don't know, and most people won't, Dun & Bradstreet is a place that sort of provides, um, they give you like a number, they give you a Dun & Bradstreet number, and, and it allows corporations to sort of form trust between each other, a, a, a proof of insurance, a proof of uh, business. Do I have that about right, Jeff? Yeah, that's that's 100 percent correct. Yeah. And it, I mean, it might have been like during college in my later years, I actually had a part time job 
at Sears and the credit department as a product because I had that on my resume. But that was a credit department. That was collections. That was that was a guy back then calling, hey, you know, credit collections. <laughs> had credit collections on my own. Well, although that not the same thing, but it still had credit on the resume. You leveraged it. Yeah. All good. <laughs> that's that's what you're supposed to do. Um, so, you know, you're working at uh, Dun & Bradstreet. You're a marketing major. What inspired you to, to take this path towards promotion? I think you couldn't even really explain to your parents what it well, was. The, the promotion thing started way before that. I mean, I, the entrepreneur started in, in high school um, and it was by yeah. accident. Yeah, it was by it was actually by accident. Um, the school I, I was, you know, I was really heavily in sports, football and track. And so actually at, at that time, my goal would say I'm going to play football. That was what I was focused on. But I, had a, I had a friend, so, you know, so I had a friend at another school. So I went to in, in San Jose at that time. I had like our school was kind of like the popular school in San Jose. Right. In mm-hmm. terms of in terms of being really diverse with, you know, uh, Latino, black, we were kind of like the school. So I had a friend in another school who his school was basically um it was very less diverse but his parents were were going out of town they were going to jamaica and he wanted to do a party at his house so he basically came to me and said hey jeff can you get everybody from your school to come to this party we're going to charge a dollar i'll give you 25 cents and I'm like yeah that's he's a so he <laughs> buyer so needs to say um you know the police shut down the party because it was like we were lying down a block so we had this big party but what what that led to now this is just like this is really my junior year in high school I, I mean it's just a fun thing it had nothing to do with like okay this is a business entrepreneur but what that led to my friend was very very entrepreneur at the time and he said okay hey let's do some more parties let's go rent the the roller rink let's go rent the club I'm like all right I mean because getting for me I wasn't thinking that that's a marketing thing I was like okay you just need me to get people to come to the party right buy money and and that led into bigger parties and bigger parties by my senior year by college. So there was a point that um, once the party started to get big, like a thousand people and say, okay, we need to do radio. And I mean, they need to go to San Francisco, Oakland, because we're doing parties there. It just so happens. And like I said, this stuff is, is not planned, but it just so happens that um, one of my other friends who lived around the corner, his uncle was the program the program director at a radio station called ksol which is now came mm-hmm. the big urban station in in the bay area he was the program director so he um his uncle would come down every week and because my, my friend's um mother which was their aunt watched his kids so he'd come down every weekend kind of see what they're doing hey what are you guys doing he would talk all the time kind of mentor yeah. right? hey you don't need parties oh you should go bigger and get radio i'm like I know nothing about buying radio. Because remember, I'm I'm still at that point. I'm still a senior in high school. Right. Um. So he kind of just walked me through everything. Um. At that point, I wasn't even 18 yet, so I couldn't even sign a contract. So I did my first radio buy. Um. And my father had to come sign the contract because I was like, you know, I wasn't even old enough to sign a contract. And then from there, that started these big parties. And I'm now I'm buying radio, and he said, "Okay, look, I can get." you some talent, you know, Janet Jackson, people like that to come to these dicks parties and start doing these parties in San Francisco. Um, and that, and that really led to, that's the entertainment thing. And when I moved up to Seattle, go to the university of Washington, that was just fertile ground because there wasn't no promoters up there. So my, me, my friend and my other friend all went to Washington with roommates and we started doing these parties up there. And obviously like that was fertile because there wasn't, there wasn't really, there was yeah. one, one group of promoters up there, but that, that was just easy to take them out. So that's when I started getting entertainment. But but remember, I'm still playing football. So it's still just it's still just like, OK, we make some extra money <laughs> having fun doing it. But what happened is when um, I got hurt um, my second year. So I ended up stopped playing football because I had a bunch of injuries. And then I started focusing on this. And we had got me and friends. We were DJing also. Um, and we got a radio show that was at the University of Washington through the communications class. It was an FM station in a blank. You know, Seattle, there was no hip hops. There was really no hip hop stations in Seattle. Oh, so we'd have, a, we'd have a Sunday show, started playing hip hop, boom, 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 boom. Then all of a sudden, 
the DJ pools, which we didn't even know what a DJ pool was. Like there was no like there was <laughs> book, right? They started calling, they would start sending us records to the stations. You're like, okay. And so all of a sudden, within about two months, like our apartments is full of records, but the radio, the record, the pool DJs are sending us records. So now we're spinning records and we're breaking records. So obviously next thing you just look on a record, okay, let's start putting a, a hip hop act at the parties because we were doing like a thousand to fifteen hundred people at parties. So that was just kind of a natural progression. It wasn't something that was planned. Um, but that the first the first group I booked was LA Dream Team, which was actually Jerry Heller, who was wow. the manager. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jerry Heller, I, mean, I paid him a thousand dollars. They flew up, boom, we did LA Dream Team sold out. It was a New Year's Eve show. But then I put run DMC. Da -da, da -da. But it was just one act at a party, um, per se. That led me into the concert business, full full scale. So when I graduated, I'm still doing these hip hop acts here, rap acts here. Right. Then I go to Dun & Bradstreet, and now the entertainment thing is like really moving. So at one point, then I had to make a like true story because that's back when they had um, they had um, you know it was no internet, it was fax machines, right, and phones. So. <laughs> right. I my desk just happened to be in the back by the fax machine. So I'm doing my done the brass but then I'm working my entertainment, sending faxes, all that kind of stuff. And then manager called me and said, Hey, are you running a business out there? I'm like, no. But then they moved my desk right next to the um to the manager's office. And that's what I had to make the choice. And I quit. And I said, I'm gonna yeah. do the entertainment thing, full thing. But it wasn't something that was planned at the early stages. Yeah. But, but I have to say the hip hop hip-hop music and culture really enabled me to really grow my entrepreneurship and like entrepreneur bones and then and, and, and then move into the industry because there wasn't a lot of competition because the bigger promoters and things rather didn't really understand the genre bitcoin they thought it was just kind of like a you know flash in and out but that's what really gave me the the roots to really um to grow my career um, everybody from, like I said, from Easy to NWA to Luke to all those guys back then, I used to roll with all those guys and they're the ones that are really giving it a shot. Yeah. It's remarkable to look back on those early days of hip hop and see and recognize and read and hear about how many credible people thought that hip hop was really just a flash in the pan, a fad. They did. That Absolutely. it was going to come and go. Mm -hmm. And that seems so preposterous now but back then there was a real sense that this this music wasn't was gonna be around was, wasn't gonna wasn't gonna last and i love the story of uh, as well because it just goes to show that success happens brick by brick one thing leads to another one yeah. good decision begets another mm -hmm. and you look back on it and you say oh i built a wall <laughs> and that wall is my career so it's a really good lesson for you know anyone listening uh you started out sort of saying like high school hey i'll give you a quarter for every dollar or whatever we charge the door to get people in and i would say in, in my mind that's you sort of starting with just the simple desire to make some money on the side mm -hmm. if anyone was listening today and wanted to follow the same path would you say start with money or start with someone whether it be themselves or someone they're representing talent and try to polish that talent and see if you can get the money through the talent or well, get I mean, the success through the talent. Yeah. I think, I mean, it kind of goes, I mean, if I'm talking to people now, if I was my younger self now, it'd be social media that like you like the dip because what you can do with social media and done right in any business from a marketing standpoint, from an audience standpoint, technology is kind of the equalizer. even like how we're talking about AI, right? Right. Technology is the equalizer for young folks and for entrepreneurs to really, if they want to go into business, something, do something, that's, that's the big, because you can reach people directly. Audiences in direct, direct to direct um relationship with consumers are the most coveted kind of thing for companies trying you know trying to reach audiences so i would really um for like for me i would i really advocate is especially when i'm focused I, I work with a lot of like high school kids and, and college kids i do internships and stuff like that and really surround social media and my my thesis is this i always tell kids show me your phone how many hours are you on the phone 
you're you're eight hours on the phone. Make money with it. You right. use your phone all day long, and it's all social media. What's the usage on your phone? If you look at the usage on your phone, what you're using the phone for, you're sitting on social media. Well, if you're gonna be on the phone for that for that long during the day, figure out how to make money with it. Yeah, that's 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 my thing. Yeah, it really it there really is. Um, I mean, the fulcrum really is your choice, right? You can be on the phone all day and it can be sort of social media can be this thing that makes you depressed. It can be this thing that makes you feel like you're compared to others. It can be this thing that, that, that makes you laugh. It can mm. also be this thing that makes you money. Exactly. <laughs> it just depends exactly. on what choices exactly. you're making. What is your input and output mm. with, with that tool, uh, going into, um, your filmmaking work a little bit. I'm curious what you look for in a project. How do you determine whether a film project has the potential to succeed? You're willing to sort of bet on it and develop I'm a, it. I'm a little bit probably different from most Hollywood executives where a lot of Hollywood executives went, you know, being in a studio for so long, you have a lot of creative people who are in positions that make choices based off their subjective personal likes or like dislikes you know you, you ever seen that movie like you look like how did this movie ever get made with somebody yeah. in somebody's studio oh i like this concept i'm always i look for projects that i that i believe there, there's an audience for it's not based on my personal like oh i like this or i like that because personally the kind of movies that i go see i like action i like john wick's wick i like matrix that's what i personally like Right. I'm not necessarily making those movies, you know, Gladiator, stuff like that, or, you know, Black Panther. That's the stuff I personally like. So when I'm looking at stuff is really, I really study audiences and trends and what, what I think the audience and also how can I market the film? So for me, it's like I, my, I put my mark. Soon as I look at a script, I'm, my marketing hat is on. OK, how would I market this? How does this cast? So it's really is there an audience for it versus is it something that I personally like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, you know super important. I think we you know we do something very similar where we're looking for what where where does the audience live inside of this screenplay inside of this work of art? Like who who are your supporters? Who are, who are the who are the people in the community and organizations in the community that may support a film like this? If we're trying to do a little bit of an independent film raise, for example, mm -hmm. um, I think that's. You know, a, a super smart approach. I mean, do you, do you have to love the story uh, or do you have to, or, or do you have to see cast? Like what, do, what are you looking for first? Well, I think what filmmakers should know if they're going into pitch to a studio, the more elements that you have, the more likely you have to do it. Because for example, if you bring me a script and it's mm -hmm. just a script, well, that means I got to go out and find the cast. I have to go out and do so. So now you just you're putting that load on me versus, but hey, I got this script and so so is attached to that. You know, so the more elements that are attached, the more likelihood to pick up. Now that's not to say that's always the case. That's kind of more in my case. Now in certain cases, other people might have different things, but because I have to do so many things in running a company, it's not just really film production or acquisition. But I have a lot of I have a lot of hats that I wear, so I'm always looking for, um, you know a shorter path if I see a project. Right. Right. So in other words, guys, if you're, if you're hearing what just put down there and be entrepreneurial in your approach to your work and have a lot of the work done in advance, your, your chances will go up exponentially from there. Um, exactly. I mentioned to you before that, uh, mm -hmm. we did a, you know, I've lived in the life of Jeff, uh, Clanigan for the last week or two and prep for this interview. And we love research. turns out you've also called yourself a researcher. And yeah. uh, you said that your own research has helped more than anything throughout your career. So curious what the single most important thing you found through your research has been and, and how did that impact your career? Well, I think by any, any, in any business or any endeavor that you're going into, you, you really have to research a business and, 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 and learn everything about it. Um, because if you go in blind and, you know, you have blind spots, um, when you do it. So, I mean, I, my thing, even like when I talk to people, sometimes people ask me questions and it's questions they could have just Googled, 
<laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I mean, just, why don't you Google the questions and then drill down to a more like succinct questions around whatever the topic is. So I, I feel a lot of people don't do the research um, like they want to do, like, you know, meetings and generals and stuff like that. But they haven't done the research. So they're asking me like general stuff like you could just Google that. Right. Um, and so that that's where I see a lot of people falling short at is not and not taking the time to just kind of research the subject or whatever the whether whatever their interest is. Like so for example, you have people say, Hey, I want to get in the entertainment industry. I'm like, okay, what is it that you want to do? Well, I don't know. Well, go back and research it, come back to me, say, Hey, I like this job, then I can give you more information. And that that's why that's what I see a lot of. Uh, I got it. I got it. Yeah, because and the 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 reality is is and in, in the context you're sharing this when you don't when you have a group of people that don't do their research the basic research what ends up happening is you create a corporate culture of meetings which mm-hmm. is a terrible corporate culture where yeah. you're always in mind numbing meetings that didn't have to take place had the group just did a simple Google search or two to have the basis basics down. Because to me, the best meeting is a meeting where you can brainstorm, wear different hats in the meeting and ideate. You can't do that if, if everybody's not on the same page. So it's, exactly. it's a great point. Uh, yeah. You, <laughs> uh, There's a lot to go over with you, obviously, but uh, one of the things that's interesting is you talked about promoting concerts. Mm-hmm. How is that different? from promoting a national comedy tour, which, which you've done. It's pretty pretty much the same thing. I mean, a conscious comedy tour, because it's just the, the genre, whether it's music or comedy, uh, stage places you're promoting because you have to wear, you know, you book the talent, you book the buildings, you route, you do all the advertising, marketing, put tickets on sales, pretty much the same thing. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't know to the depths in which it would be the same thing. It's interesting how that works. Cause I, I view a concert as a one-off promotional event, whereas a comedy tour is a series of promotional events, but, but you've yeah. probably gone on the road with these artists too, as well. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I went like, I, I, okay. So, so you're not like a one-off guy on the that. concert side. I give you that. The everybody I'm sure has seen the movie straight out of Compton, right? Yep. Guy was on I have. Whole, okay. Yeah. I was on the whole tour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, was saying that back the day. I was a promoter on the whole tour. Yeah. It wasn't a one-off set. So that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Um, mm-hmm. Keeping it in, in that uh, you mentioned it straight out of Compton. Let's, let's jump from uh, NWA to the, to the no limit family. Uh, when you were with no limit films, it was the first company to create the whole business model of straight to DVD movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from a business perspective, how important was that to independent filmmakers at the time and what kept it from happening before you came along? I just find it interesting that, that you had to come along before we got that. Well, the business, when you talk to, let's say director, director video or director consumer at the time. So you think about the business in the nineties is basically you had, the model was you had blockbuster Mm -hmm. and you had Hollywood video. And at that time, you didn't buy movies. You went and rented them. You often paid exorbitant, you know, late fees because everybody would always keep the movies. You know, <laughs> yeah. crazy fees, but you would you would rent you would rent the movies. Like that was the business. I mean, the studios make a movie, boom, they put a blockbuster rent. So there wasn't a there wasn't a sell through model. There wasn't a home. You know, everybody had um, <clears throat> where nobody was really buying videos, and that was just what the model was. Um, the reason that we broke that mold was not by, you see, this once again, it wasn't by plan. It was by, it was by, we didn't have a choice. And this, this is the thing about, you know, being an entrepreneur running a company. So when Master P said he wanted to start making these movies, I went around to every studio in town trying to get a distribution deal. Everybody said, no, most mm-hmm. of them didn't know who Master P was. But this is when I this is when I realized when I came to Hollywood, I came to Hollywood, I wanted to produce and stuff like that. But this is when I realized, okay, the distributors are the gatekeepers. They're the ones that, you know, dictate where the movies get made, get distributed. But without distribution, you don't have anything. So that's what really got me to change my outlook on what I where I wanted to be in the business. But the way that we actually got into the sell through model of videos was by default. So when the studio said no, 
you know, I went back to P and said, "Hey, this studio's not getting. I'm not getting no action." He just told me to figure it out. It wasn't there was no plan. <laughs> so the logic was this: is where Blockbuster and Hollywood were the only place that you could get movies. I just went to all the record stores. I went to Warehouse Records. I went to Tower Records. I went to Circuit City. I went to Best Buy. Whoever was selling CDs because I knew they were selling millions of CDs of all the No Limit product. And I and I and I present and I propped them about position about carrying um, videos. And they all said no at first because like videos, we don't carry videos or music, right? But because he was selling so many records, I had a lot of leverage. I kept going. So I got everybody to sign on. Now, the key here was, um, you know, I said, look, you've got to take these movies. You've got to merchandise them right on the top shelf with all the CDs. Because, you know, at that time, we had a whole no limit section, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to bring the movies in, merchandise them right on the section. Well, Two and a half years and $44 million later, that was the start of the straight to video business. And that's what started. We were the first. It was not a studio that started straight to. It was no limit. We was the first one to change that and created that whole business model. But it was by, it was by necessity. It wasn't by necessary plan. Yeah. And, and invention by necessity is, mm. the, is typically the sort of nesting ground for the best ideas that we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Exactly. As, as a as a species, because you solve a real problem versus a problem. A lot of entrepreneurs, and I'm just speaking from my own experience being an entrepreneur, is that you try to solve a problem that that you're guessing is a problem. Yeah. And so you're going to create a product and say, let me see if there's a market for this product. Let me see if there's exactly. product market fit. But you're not sure versus when you, you know, for me, doing branding and marketing for independent film was a no brainer because I'd done independent films where I saw the difference between getting a good distribution deal and a bad one was the fact that there weren't branding and marketing dollars spent on that film. Um, You know, our film adult interference, for example, which was Kate Upton's last feature film. Mm. No, we just didn't know what we didn't know at the time, Jeff. So we didn't have her sign a contract that says, Hey, you're going to promote this movie. Mm-hmm. So because she was going in a different direction with her career, which is fine, you know, she's going into like health mom sort of wife category and getting out of movies. She wanted to just associate from the movie. Mm-hmm. And so our MG and our, and our deal with Lionsgate and, and some of the other deals we could have pursued, you know, didn't happen uh, because there was just no juice anymore. Uh, exactly. and, and so we took a deal that, although we're very grateful for the deal and grateful for the distributor, I think the movie could have made a lot, lot, lot more money for everybody um, had the marketing and branding been there and had the promotion been there. So, you know, Mm -hmm. that's me solving my own problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it, I think I love the fact that, Hey, we got told, no, we're not taking no for an answer. We're figuring out a new way forward, which is really great. You, you did that as well with code black films. It's the first independent vertically integrated African-American owned studio. Mm -hmm. What was your greatest pushback and resistance from getting that off the ground? There actually wasn't because I was well, before I called Black. So just on the, on the timeline, when I transitioned out of No Limit, I started a company called Urban Works. Urban and Works. Okay. Urban Works was the kind of, it was, you know, it was before called Black, but, you know, Urban Works was like six, we had it for six years, but that was the first, that was actually the first, um, distributor because that when you know once after coming off the success of the no limit stuff, I then created a, um, a company and and so that's why I really broke the ground for retail in terms of establishing relationships with Walmart and Target and terms of straight to video movies. But I was able to like to really break genres that were not in existence at um, retail where people didn't even know there was a demand. So for example. Um, I'm the one that built the model and set the distribution bottom model for the Anmon mixtape series. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, they were they were giving away these 30 minute videos when you buy shoes. And knowing how hot it was on the street, I said, "Look, this is a real business." And they didn't have a at that point. Anmon they weren't even thinking about a media or entertainment video. I said, "Look, I can sell these." I took those into Walmart um target and then them things went through the roof same thing on with especially with walmart um there were no stand-up comedy um videos at retail 
um, I did a deal with um, Time Life and Deaf Comedy Jam. That's when they were doing the Time Life. You call in 800 and you get the series. So I, I took the Deaf Comedy Jam and established that at retail. That was just huge. And that's what actually built the whole stand-up comedy market. It was, um, it was the Deaf Comedy Jam stuff. That's amazing. Is that a golden doodle, by the way? It's a Bernie. <laughs> okay. I've got two golden doodles. I was <laughs> like, I thought I, I thought I saw a doodle faces right there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, dog lover, and that's a that's a great point, and and uh, another great story because I'm getting nostalgic thinking about N1 and thinking about comedy and retail. I'm like, mm. I'm talking to the man that 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 was at the forefront of getting those things started. I always assumed N1 had a business plan from the beginning because they were so well done. Mm-mm. It was just they were selling shoes. I went to them. I said, look, I can, I can, I can create a whole business around this, and that's what started the whole their whole entertainment and media business the touring and all that stuff and but the videos but it just didn't exist but i i think you know the thing is is that at that time like with the m1 mixtapes and then like deaf comedy jam this stuff was not a retail so even when you know after no limit when the the market started changing in terms of self the video it was just movies it wasn't kind yeah. of these independent specialized thing like an m1 mixtape deaf comedy jam then the studios figured out, okay, they started distributing movies and sell through, but uh, these kind of specialty things did not exist. But this goes back to what I was, what I said earlier is I knew there would be an audience demand for it. It was, I knew there's an audience for it. It may, you couldn't, you couldn't, there was no comps. I couldn't like put this in the business place and guarantee it's going to work, but I didn't hear it. I instinctively knew that there's a huge audience for this, for the entertainment. Yeah, the branding for N1 was built in and they they went a long way to sort of putting a lot of pressure, if not sort of making the Harlem Globetrotters feel almost nearly irrelevant for, you know, a time. And again, it just goes to show necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the top of our conversation that you were talking about your kids not not really wanting to be in entertainment because it takes its cutthroat. It takes a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. I am curious with all the uber talented people you've worked with, have you noticed that common thread between them? And if so, what is the common thread between all the people you've worked with that have been so successful in their career in entertainment? But I would say probably the four people that I've worked with that all have the same um, similarities, work ethic, um very entrepreneur very creative would be um luke you know luke skywalker luther campbell um eric wright easy master p and kevin hart they are they they're like these guys were groundbreakers during their era but very very entrepreneur like when i say entrepreneur i mean um you know, one of the stories I tell sometimes is when I was work, working with Luke, I spent a lot of time in Miami. And the way that he was breaking records, I mean, he was a promoter because he used to produce parties. So, but he had, he basically had a bootleg um, FM transmitter radio station that would show up like on 89.5, 88. You never know where you'd have to search, right? Yeah. They would have to move around every day because the FCC would always be chasing, right? But it was state this this transmitter he had covered like all of mine. So he's breaking his records, playing his records, his DJs. But it was like you go on, you know, 88.5, 89, 82, but you'd have to search, and then you find it, and then there's for a day. And it might and it might be a little different the next day. But that's that was some that was some entrepreneur. Like Luca's the one I was like, this this guy just straight buildings on market he's not taking no for an answer i mean he's not you know he's not running to the major record labels he basically built his own market yeah what's remarkable about luke is that he's the person on the list that people might think is is doesn't fit yet he from everything i've read he would be the most entrepreneurial he was he was doing things that don't get a lot of press i recently finished the will smith uh, book, mm-hmm. uh, Will, and he has an entire section dedicated to Luke and how entrepreneurial he was. And that, yeah, Luke, yeah, I learned a lot from Luke. Um, but yeah, Luke was like, when I say entrepreneur, like that was the, the independent label promoter, he, he was doing it all. Um, but like, so he doesn't get all the press sometimes or exactly, but he's the only one that, that's that really broke it open for everybody else. 
Yeah, shout out to Luke Skywalker. Shout out to to Luke and, and it's the path uh he has paved and doesn't get always uh, always doesn't get credit for 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 sort of you know mowing those trees down so we can all walk a little easier down that path. I want to take this into the world before I have to let you go into the world of of uh Jeff Clinton, the day to day. We got to meet your dog. Uh what's your dog's name, by the way? Yeah, well, there's two of them, there's Bootsy and Cassius. <laughs> I don't. I already know why they're named that, so that's good. Uh, yeah. So I love Boosie and Cassius. That's great. Uh, we want to get into a little bit of of, of you know your day to day and and what what drives you and your creativity and entrepreneurialism. Um, when you're in focus mode, what what music do you listen to? Um, uh, you know, I'm a hip hop head, but unfortunately, to be honest with you, like today's hip hop is like, I mean, outside of make Kendrick or J. Cole, uh, you know, Jay put something out, but the new stuff is just, I mean, I don't want to go in that, down that road, but so I'm listening, I'm listening more to the kind of the older stuff on, on my Apple iTunes. Um, what do you there, recommend us listening to? Like, if we're just trying to get like some work done for an hour, what do you, what, what, what should we put on any genre, any music? Doesn't matter. Well, it depends what I'm doing. Like if I'm working out, it might be hip hop. If it's at night riding, it might be um, R&B. Um, so it really depends what mood I'm in. But it'll go from hip hop to R&B, one of those two. Yeah, yeah. I I just, I, I came up in R&B as a musician doing kind of R&B pop. And mm. there, I, I love just to, there's like playlists, obviously now that, that just the, the apps will generate for you probably using AI. And those are great. I think those are the problem with those for me with focus, Jeff, is that I will start to sing along yeah, yeah. and lose track of what I'm typing or what I'm trying to, mm-hmm. to do. Uh, so yeah, th- but th- that's, that's good. I, I would hip hop for working out is a no brainer. Uh, yeah. R and B to me, it has to be R and B like maybe like a Maxwell type yeah, like that, where, that. Exactly where it just is all it's also soothing yeah. and i can get into that focus space otherwise i go straight to uh claire de lune and like right. and like our jazz like i'll just go to jazz sometimes even coltrane's like a little too busy to focus mm-hmm. but uh uh brubeck uh glenn gold the, those are some good good choices for for me on focus mode um okay as as detailed as possible can you just run down your daily routine so like you know what time do you wake up what do you like to have for breakfast uh what does that work out like what software do you use etc things just whatever you want to add in in terms of your your uh, day i mean usually i wake up around six um get up um sometimes exercise sometimes not depending on what's going on but it the the challenge over the last two or three years because of the pandemic is um, what I've seen is a very huge increase in email and reliance on email versus person-to-person contact and conversations. So unfortunately, it's one of my biggest complaints that I'm spending, you know, just five, six hours a day doing emails, which is, which is crazy to me. Brutal. Um, sitting working on a computer. So I've, you know, a lot of the days is just answering emails and then doing Zoom calls all day long. Um, in this in this current environment, I mean, I think that'll change a little bit. But there's, there's a lot of Zoom calls and a lot of a lot of emails, just dealing with you know everything that's going on. My outlet away from the business though on a daily is that I'm actually the um, the high school track and field coach at Calabasas, so that's kind of my step away from the the business is to get my head clear that has nothing to do with business. What was your 40 and your 100 time and at your peak Four four in high school? Um, I did four. Yeah. I did not run the hundred. Um, gotta be kidding me. No, no, I was a 400 runner. Um, 49, eight and a 400. I was a triple jumper to 48 and a triple jump. Okay. You, you were a legit, you were a serious athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. yeah. That was the, the that was like the, the path was athletic was 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 sports. Yeah, you can roll four four is rolling, folks. If you don't know, I was uh probably a four seven four mm-hmm. six person at at my peak at my very you know mm-hmm. fastest. So yeah, you you were rolling. Uh, I I respect that. Uh, bullet sort of bullet round questions here. 
uh, for filmmakers, entertainers, people that are creatives, what books do you recommend? What would I recommend? Books. Do you have any books you could recommend? Um, I see there are lots of books for those just on the podcast <laughs> and the audio only. Yeah, no, I got a bunch of books. Um, well, I mean, first thing I'd always say is the business of film. Learn the business that you're getting into. Even if you're creative, learn the business because you learn the business, it'll help you. It'll help guide you on your journey and, and you know, into the business. But there's you no know, book, the business of film. It's just an overview of how the film business works, but also understand how deals work, how things get set up. A lot of people don't understand is that films get greenlit or picked up is yeah, you're pitching to a creative, but ultimately it's it's the numbers guys behind the scenes that you never see who are driving and dictate what actually gets picked up or released. Cause every, everything's like, you know, put onto a PNL, which is a profit and loss statement um, in terms of driving what that investment is going to be from a studio on whether they're going to pick up a film or not. That's a very good point. Uh, what are the biggest mistakes you see newcomers making new, you know, filmmakers make in general and, and what advice would you give to avoid those mistakes? For film, like for filmmakers. Yep. Never pitch a film and say, hey, I got an incredible soundtrack. Doesn't mean anything. Maybe <laughs> come in and leave. Well, I got the soundtrack. That has nothing to do with the film. <laughs> that's that's number one. Number two, don't be a clone of, hey, I got the next Tyler Perry. We already have one Tyler Perry. We don't need another Tyler Perry. I mean, you, you'd be surprised some of the uh, people come in and and pitch stuff based on something that's, that's successful. Now, you do you can reference comps, but don't say I have the next Tyler Perry. I've got the, I've got the, the soundtrack is going to be really the soundtrack has nothing to do with the film. Um, also people use, you know, what's, what's called comps and like, Hey, this film is going to make $200 million. No, it's not. And then you have no, <laughs> no data to say it would, but you'd be sort of, that's how, how like, it's the film based on a creative, like you don't have enough information to say the film's going to do $200 million and it shouldn't be the next this or next that. Um, but that's where a lot of people make mistakes at and, and, and pitches. Uh, that's a really great point. And the other thing about the soundtrack is don't tell me about the soundtrack, especially if there are songs you don't have rights to. Exactly. Like that's a whole other boat yeah. of, of uh, shit you have to swim through if yeah. uh, uh, if you're trying to produce a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any you're a promoter and a marketing major? I'm a marketing and journalism major. Uh, we, we we're kindred spirits in that way. Is there anything new in the PNA space that you're excited or that you about or that you found innovative and PNA or marketing, if you want to put it in common parlance? Well, I think what happens is, you know, where we're at right now in the industry is that you have um, brands who are now potentially becoming P&A partners. And, and it's in some cases, even Interesting. funding um, content, because what's happening is that the brands have realized that the traditional way of just putting up commercials and things like that is not working. So you there's there's a whole nother pool of potential finance financing that's associated with brands. I mean, there are brands that are producing TV and things like that and um, potential P&A partners. So I think that's where that's going to be the next iteration of where you kind of see um, the investment coming to from a content into the content and their P&A space. That's a bit cyclical, isn't it? Like, I think that's how TV started was that your program would be whatever you were watching that night would be sponsored by yes. Acme Proc Insurance Company. Exactly. Proctor and Apple. Um, is the one that created that model with soap operas. I mean, soap operas are nothing with a 30-minute commercial for Procter & Gamble, but that, it is. So it's going, <laughs> that, that's actually where it's going back to, though. That's exactly right. Wow. We've always said that that innovation is nothing more than bundling and then unbundling and doing it over and over again. So yeah. I, I think, you know, what goes around comes around, right? Yep. Uh, we talked about social media, the, the negative side of it and the positive side of it. I think the business in general, you said it was a cutthroat business. Obviously, that can have some different effects on people's mental health and the way you feel and uh, your self-worth. And I'm just curious if you've ever been in a dark place in this business before, Jeff. And if so, how did you get yourself out of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I've had ups and downs um, in the business, especially on the um, 
on the pro when I was a promoter, kind of because it, it's it's promoting is such high risk. Um, it's yeah. such a high risk business. So there's a couple of times I almost had to I actually had had almost had to step out of the business for a second um, when I was a promoter. So because mm. it's just so um, it's just a high risk. Like you can make a lot of money, you can lose a lot of money. It's kind of like it's kind of like being at the blackjack table in Vegas, like you can, you can hit, 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 and then you can lose it, lose it, lose it. Like one of my big, the biggest, um, probably loss I had is, um, coming out of, um, I bought into the run DNC tour. I probably like bought 15 dates. This is way back in the day, but this is when they had, um, their tougher than leather tour coming out. Right. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, you know, obviously it was very expensive um, venturing into dates. The album flopped. The album flopped because completely affected all the ticket sales. So, you know, because they, they pre-sold the tour, you know, based on it's running DMC. So everybody's just buying in. So that was a tough period um, because the album flopped, which, which impacted ticket sales. But How did you high, get high, yourself high, out of that gym? Say it again. How did you get yourself out of that that sort of dark <laughs> space? Took years to get out of that space because you lost so much money. Yeah. Uh, so so I imagine you were you were you know today they would talk about it differently. I think that whole sort of you know Charlemagne the God sort of you know shook one mm. uh, kind of presence now where where in the black community it's it's okay to go get a therapist. It's okay to admit that you have anxiety. It's okay to say that you're feeling a little depression. I, but back then, I don't think that was the case. So I'm just curious how you were able to work yourself through that. I mean, it's, it's survival. Like it's kind of like that point you, it's, it's, um, you didn't, it's kind of, you don't have a choice. Like, I mean, you just have to pull yourself out of the space. I, I, can, I don't think I, I went to anybody or talk to anybody, but, but it's just, um, you, you kind of deal with it. Um, especially in, in, during that time period, you just have to deal. You just deal with it. You, you have to be strong. You have to be really strong-minded and focused and motivated to kind of pull out um, of those kind of situations. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing from that is when you're in those spots where you've had a major failure, if you believed in your original foundational thesis about yourself and about what you're doing, then just double down on it and focus, refocus on work. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm always been to believe I can I can always pull myself out of a situation. So I, it, it wasn't so it wasn't like I thought I couldn't. So it's just you know you just you got to believe in yourself and believe in your plan and your model and what you're doing. Yeah, spot on. I'm fascinated by this concept that you're doing with heartbeat. This heartbeat experience. Mm -hmm. uh, these are sort of not filmed, not recorded, not streamed, and not replayed on social media. Uh, and so. Um, the way you're marketing it so far on social media is really interesting too. So what's been the public response to these heartbeat experience events where you have to be there to experience it. And otherwise you just kind of quote unquote missed out. What it, it's interesting, you know, the, the traditional Hollywood's like, Hey, you should be filming. You should be filming. I'm like, well, yeah, but we're building an experiential a live business, right? I mean, you know, one of the things about the pandemic, the live sector, live business is something that's really rebounded. People want to interact with each other, want to be, you know, go to destinations where the people are. So when you look at the concert, like if you look at this summer, you got Beyonce on tour, and everybody's on tour, Drake's on tour, everybody's going, and, and the tickets are selling. So consumers are obviously a demand for it. So what I didn't want to do with our experiences is water down when I want to say watered down experience is I wanted to set it up in a way. And it is like you said, it's marketing. Like, look, you got a beer. And if you're not here, guess what? You just missed Dave Chappelle walking on stage at Madison square garden. We didn't announce that in, a in South Africa, you just missed Trevor Noah popping up on stage. So the, the whole catch is like, Hey, this is the announced talent, but guess what? Guaranteed there's going to be some surprise guests. So it might be only happening one time. Like you're not going to see Kevin, Dave, and Chris on the stage again. At least not right now, as they figured something out. But 
it's a one in, one in a lifetime um, experience. So that's what we're trying to market. And that's when people are responding very favorably because they, when they see they miss out on stuff and it's not, nope, you're not going to see a stream on Netflix. You got to be there. Yeah. There's two brilliant things about that. One, we're in an age of inundation with content. Mm-hmm. So to pull content away is genius mm-hmm. because everybody's feeding, 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 feeding. And you're saying, well, I don't need to feed you. Uh, you know, I'll pull this away and you need to come do this because the second part of that that's brilliant to me is that what is life but just a set of experiences that you can tell stories about? Because, you know, in the words of Joseph Campbell, we are the storytelling animal. Exactly. And, and you can't tell a story if everybody experienced it because it isn't for you anymore. Exactly. It isn't your story anymore. And there's something really powerful about that. I was I was in a board meeting, the... Um, I'm on a few boards and I was on a board meeting of a film festival and uh, they were talking about, would people really pay $2,500 a plate to be at this dinner with, with Taylor Swift? Mm -hmm. And I was like, how many do we need to sell? And they're like, probably 50. That's all. I said, yeah, you'll get 50 people to pay $2,500 a plate to eat dinner with Taylor Swift. 50. That's it. Yeah, of course they will. Because mm. they'll have the one of 50 people mm. that can tell the story that they got to have dinner with Taylor Swift. It's that's true. That's you know, true. So being in Nashville, obviously that's a big deal, but it's, um, you know, that's, uh, I think people think to themselves about the, they think about the money and they don't think mm. about the experience, but the mm. experience is all, all we really have. Um, Jeff, you, you've been incredible. I knew you would be, I want to keep my promise to you and get you out of here. Okay. somewhat on time. Do you have any parting words, pieces of advice for our audience? Um, probably nothing that I haven't covered. Just, you know, you got to believe in yourself, but you got to, whatever you, whatever path you choose to pursue is you got to do the research. You got to educate yourself on what business you're going to be. And if you're going to be a filmmaker, then learn about the film business. You know, you can't just be a filmmaker without understanding the business if you're going to be in the music understand the business but also understand if you're creating content that distribution is you know distribution is key um you know there's a saying that says content is king which probably a lot of people heard i would say if content is king distribution is emperor so you got they got to go hand in hand so if you got content you got to you got to think about how you're going to get that content to the public and that could be direct through social media or it could be through a company but you got to figure out how to find the end user and the demand and create a demand for your content it's a great point can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media on the internet maybe see some of your work and if you want to you can give them a way to contact you but it's up to you um well you can do you can go to um heartbeat.com there's a profile page there and it has a contact there go to cofilms.com um, I have a personal Facebook page, but I don't really, I'm not really on it that much. Um, I probably shot more on LinkedIn than anything personally. And then I have, um, on Facebook, I have a bunch of cold black brand pages. Um, but those, like I said, those are not personal pages, but probably, you know, LinkedIn or, or heartbeat.com. All right. Well, we'll end on this. What is the funniest thing Kevin Hart has ever said to you personally? But I, I would, I mean, he's, he tells jokes all the time. So, but I, actually, Kevin doesn't, you know, people think about comedians is that, like, off the stage, he's not necessarily, I mean, he says stuff, but he's not necessarily just joking, joking all the time. You know what I mean? So it's not like he it's just, he just talks how he talks. But that's what a lot of, I think that's, that's a whole other subject, though. Um, comedians have another whole other side to them a whole nother side that's off the stage. So they're not just like off the stage. They're not just telling jokes all the time. They might yeah. be talking, like playing the dozens per se, but it's not, that's playing the dozens, but that's just a, that's a cultural thing. You know what I mean? But it's not necessarily just, just joking around all the time. Yeah. It's a good point because I've, when I watch Kevin Hart across a lot of different contexts and platforms, you get to see a piece of his humanity uh, yeah. mixed in with his comedy all the time. So for example, he recently did an interview uh, with Houdinki, the watchmaking company. I know he's really into AP yeah. and he's a brand ambassador for them, mm-hmm. but that interview started with him just being Kevin, yeah, the person. 
and mm-hmm. sort of ended with really funny stories that mm-hmm. were pulled out that made that interview incredible, in my opinion. Yeah, the the thing about it. So the question you asked was the funniest thing he said. It's not something he said to me, but he's told some funny stories. And I, I would I would say just let me I'll do it like real quick. Please. Probably the funniest story he's ever said. They told me I was sitting there when we were doing the story is that he, we've been trying to we've toured Africa a couple of times, right? Mm-hmm. So we've been trying to get him to go to Nigeria. Like, ah, I'm gonna go to Nigeria. Can't get him to Nigeria because you know, obviously, because there's a lot of things, but he's got this story that um the Akon told him, I'm gonna do this real quick. Because I can't do the story justice, right? It, he got the story that Akon told him that um when Buster Rhymes um went to play Nigeria and the promoters had him over there and he did a date. And so then they they wanted Buster Rhymes to do more dates. I guess they were just promoting dates. So at one point Buster Rhymes, now Kevin's got to tell the story. Like this is I'm not giving legit. But so at one point Buster, okay, I'm finished. I want to leave. And they said, no, you can't leave. And so then Buster Rhymes being who he is in New York, he goes off on the promoters. They come up there with machetes like, you're not leaving that year, period. And they lock him in his hotel room. <laughs> so when Kevin's telling the story, so then Buster had to call Akon. Akon had to come in and do what he does and get him out. But they basically hold him up and they were not going to let him go. That's crazy. So it's, <laughs> but when Kevin's telling the story, it's like, it's just, that's probably the funny story I heard. I tell. That's great, man. I, I I appreciate that, and that is hilarious. And it's great to know because I'm a huge Buster Rhymes fan and yeah. Kevin Hart fan and Akon fan. So that 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 works for me, and, and hopefully this audience too. Mm-hmm. Jeff, you're the man. I appreciate you so much, and um, I hope we can get together uh, and do a round two. And I hope that the next time I'm in LA, we can get together, even if it's just for coffee or, or whatever you'd like to have. So uh, okay. thanks again, brother. I appreciate you. All right, sounds good. Thanks. All right, be good. Okay, Peace. Man. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts by searching for Make It Banzai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. In addition, you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we are trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please consider supporting our Patreon page. We spend a combined 35 hours a week producing each episode. We do this with a small team of go-getters that are passionate about film and connecting people with similar interests across the globe. And we have lots of goodies in store for our supporters, including bonus content, exclusive swag, and discounts and freebies to private film events. If that sounds like something you can get behind, donations start at only $5 monthly. And, of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your film's financial success, go to www.banzai.film and click on Services to explore our unrivaled approach to film marketing. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better. Be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.